So have you seen this meme before? Uh, it's been going around for a couple years now, and the caption says, Jesus, I see what you've done for other people, and I want that for me. I don't know if you've seen this before. I don't even know who this person is. Um, but I have heard it and seen it on Twitter and online. It's been used many places and many times for sports fans that want better players on their team. And they're like, Jesus, I see what you've done for others, and I want you to do that for me too. I've seen people use this for uh, when they hear of others getting promotions at work. Like, Jesus, I see what you've done for others, and I want that for me. And I've seen it used for houses. I've seen it used for cars. I've seen it used for jobs. I've seen it used in a variety of places. And usually it's materialistic things like, Jesus, I see what you've done for others, and I want that for me. And it's a joke, right? We laugh at it. And it's often misapplied to the, the things, material things. But underneath a joke like that is a real question. And it's a real question for anyone who has ever walked the journey of faith. Here's the question. Can God do what he's done in the record of scripture? Can he do what he's done for others in my life too? Or is it just something that he does for other people? And maybe you have felt that way. Like, yeah, I've read the scriptures. I've heard the stories. And it feels like God is always working and moving for others, but it skips me. That's the question in the journey of faith. Would God do that stuff, the faith stuff, the kingdom of heaven stuff? Would he do it in my life too? The prophet Habakkuk, He expresses it this way. This is kind of a, a cry of the soul. Habakkuk 3, 2 says, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And you just hear in that cry, is like, God, like I've heard about you. I've heard of your fame. I've heard of your deeds. I've read the stories. I read the book. <laughs> and I stand in awe of those things and what you have done. But like at the end of the day, I'm wondering, Lord, would you repeat them again? Would you move again? <coughs> Excuse me. Would you move again like that here now? I don't know about you, but maybe you've had those seasons where, again, you look around and you wonder. Would you do for me what you've done before? Those are real questions, real issues. Does, does faith cross over the border of time? Does faith cross over the border of generations? If he's acted before, can God do it again? Will God do it again? Maybe you've wondered that for yourself. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Because here's where we're at. We've been in this series, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for almost 12 weeks now, it's been a while. We did a little bit earlier in the year and then this last kind of run. We've talked a lot about Abraham, have we not? 
And in that, we've talked about Abraham and Sarah and Lot and Hagar and Ishmael and all the characters that surround the Abraham story. But we've, we've spent a lot of time on Abraham. Abram, and then God changes his name to Abraham. Last chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 23, the one before this, which we didn't read, Sarah, wife of Abraham, mother of faith, dies. And then in this chapter, Genesis 24, starting out at the very beginning, we are reminded just how crazy old Abraham is, that he's old. Like, he's been old for a long time now, and now he's like really, 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 really old, meaning he's about ready to die. So he's run his race. So in terms of the series and in terms of the story, we're at this um, transition point. We're at the time of passing the baton from one part of the story to the next. The series is called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the story is beginning to move. And last week, Rand shared the story of Isaac and Abraham going up on Mount Moriah and being willing to sacrifice the child of promise. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. God provided for himself a substitute. So Isaac is still alive. But I'm guaranteeing you at this point in the story, Isaac has some questions. <laughs> What's gonna happen now that mom's dead? What's going to happen when dad dies? How many times had he been around the table and heard, he heard the stories? He heard the stories about the call out of Ur of Chaldees. He heard the story about the famine and the time in Egypt and the whoops, she's my sister stories. Like How many times had Isaac heard the stories of God coming through for his parents? But I guarantee you there's times now as they're dying and they're passing the baton, they're gonna ask the question, Will this thing still work for me too? Does God still keep his promises across generations, across time? Will God do it again? And if so, why would he do it again? So this story is a good one. It's a long one, I warn you. Uh, we're not gonna read every single verse, but most of a very long chapter. But this story is really good if you are someone who has parents of faith and you've heard their stories before. This is a, a good passage for second generationers or even for people who are new to faith and have heard the stories of others and you're like, huh, will God do it for me too? Genesis chapter four, 24, verse one. Watch what happens with Isaac. It just may speak to you too. Genesis 24, verse 1 says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. <laughs> oh man, this is a good story. Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. 
but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So again, some things have changed over time. Chapter 23, Sarah dies. She is buried. Abraham's getting old and older, about ready to die. So now Abraham's looking ahead at the situation. And he's looking ahead about his son. And he's saying, okay, my son, he, yes, I have a son now, but he's single The promise of God of being a blessing, a great name, a great nation, of being a blessing to all the families of the earth, all of that requires a son, which we got now, which we didn't have, but now we have a son. But for that to continue, it requires a wife, and it requires kids, and it requires then generations, it requires legacy. So Isaac is a man, he's not married. Abraham's considering the plan, and we can talk about the cultural differences of marriages and arranged marriages and romantic marriage in our culture and context. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. The end of the story basically is, though, Abraham does not want Isaac to take a wife from the locals, from the Canaanites, because he is afraid of them turning his heart, their heart, away from the Lord. And so he wants to find someone from his family, which requires somewhat of a mission quest to find a wife for his son, of sending a servant back to his family's land, back to his family's clan, to find someone who would be suitable to marry Isaac. And so that's kind of the opening verses of the story. Abraham's evaluating the situation and he relies on his most trusted servant. Many believe this unnamed servant of Genesis 24 is Eleazar of Damascus. Back in the story in Genesis 15, before Isaac was born, he was the one that Abraham had wanted to trust with being the heir. And God's like, no, it's not going to be Eleazar. But many assume that he is this trusted eldest servant, the head of the estate and the household. He's Abraham's top guy, his trusted confidant. He's the one that he then says, I want you to go. He had charge over all that Abraham owned, which is saying a lot. So his unnamed servant in the story, he gets to play the very pivotal role in the story from here on out. This grand adventure, can he find a woman to marry Isaac? So Abraham makes him put his hand under his thigh. Not to be too frank, but many translations put that as his genitals. This is a very extremely personal, vulnerable, intimate charge. You're like, what is happening? And there's some cultural bridge that we don't fully understand, though I do find it interesting and ironic that Abraham is the one who first takes on the circumcision. Where? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, there. And now he is saying to his servant, I want you to put your hand under there where God made me have a mark where I was once unfaithful to fulfill the promises of the covenant and now I'm charging you to be a part of carrying out the covenant promises. This is very serious. Put your hand under my thigh. And he does. And he vows this is a pinky swear multiplied. I do not recommend it for you to use at home. So there's some questions. He's like, okay, I swear I'll go and find her. What happens if I can't find someone? What happens if I find someone and she doesn't want to go? Like, he's got lots of questions. This is a really big ask for Abraham to ask his servants. And Abraham, again, we see him growing in faith. We see him growing in partnership with God. And he reaffirms his confidence that God, the God of heaven, the God who called him there in the first place, he says, I trust that he is going to send someone. I trust that this will work out. And then he says, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you're free from the oath. And some translate that or understand that to be you're free from having to find someone. Some say you're free, like you're a free man. You're like, you don't have to be a servant anymore. Like your freedom is at stake here. You'd be free to go regardless. This is quite the challenge. It's quite the scene. And the servant, if it's Eleazar or not, but the servant agrees to find a wife for Isaac to carry out, to lean into, to develop the promises of God. And the tension begins to build in the story. Will he find someone? Will she be willing to come back? Will it be from the right family? Will this unnamed, unknown woman be willing to join this family's story? So he swears, here it goes. Again, it's a long story, it's drawn out. It's a beautiful story. I won't try and hurry it too much, but it's a long one, it's a warning to you. Verse 10. says, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, here's his prayer. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. <laughs> Kick the symbol. Ta-da! So the story goes, off goes the servant, off goes Eleazar. He brings 10 of his master's camels with him. He brings all sorts of gifts in his suitcase. And he goes to Mesopotamia, he goes to the city of Nahor, to the city of Abraham's only living relative, his brother Nahor. So the servant rolls into town, 10 camels in tow finds a well of water. 
He knows it's the time of day when the women of the city come to get water. So it's like, how is this guy going to find a woman to be a wife to take her back to a different land? No dating apps, no speed dating, no singles night at the pub. Here's his plan. He prays. And he asks God a most audacious request. What's the request? When I go to the well, I want to find a woman who comes to me and offers me a drink, but not only will give me a drink, I want it to be a woman who will also be willing to give a drink to all ten of my camels. Now, if you've read this story before, if you've heard it in Sunday school, you're like, yeah, of course. That's what they do. No big deal. You just ask someone to water your camels for you, or they offer to water your camels. Now, the servant asking for water is a bold ask in that culture. Being a strange man in a new town, it is bold, audacious, and risky. But don't skip over the camel part. Do you know how much water a camel drinks? Lots of water. Is that 30 gallons? Yes, you look, you're curious. You look at that. How much water does a camel drink? 30 gallons of water, that site says, times 10. Do you know how much water this woman would have to be willing to get up and down the steps from the well to the trough, back to the well to the trough, over and like This is not just like, oh, yeah, I'll feed your camels, give water to your camels. This is a massive ask. <laughs> Running back and forth in that way is insane. Highly unlikely to find someone. To to find a person like that, you would have to find a person of the highest character, the highest work ethic, and the deepest sense of hospitality. And maybe some say that's the point of the prayer. Is someone who would be willing to water ten camels may be willing to come and marry Isaac. But it would take a miracle to find her. So he prays this prayer to the Lord. He details the specifics of the challenge at hand. And then comes one of my favorite parts of the story, verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. He prays this crazy, audacious prayer. And before he finishes forming the words, before the prayer finishes leaving his mouth, behold, Rebecca. So here he is carrying out his groin pledge to Abraham, and he's come all this way, and he's a foreign man in a foreign town, and he's got thirsty camels, and he prays to God, he issues a challenge, he asks for a sign. Before he finishes speaking, she shows up. Behold, Rebecca, what? What does she do? Next slide. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, a.k.a. she's part of the family that he's looking for, came out with her water, oops, go back, came back with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my lord. 
yes. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. No way. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Lord, if this is you, if this is true, if you're showing steadfast love to my master, may there be a woman who gives me a drink and offers to water my camels and but a hold Rebecca. And she's offering a drink and she's offering to water the camels and then he's like, no way. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is God at work. Maybe he's actually doing it again. Maybe I actually have a part of the story of God's faithfulness to his promises playing out again. It's a long story, but it's super good, and it's so surreal that this woman, she's beautiful, she's from the right family, she's willing to water the camels, she comes, check, 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 right? Verse 19, unprompted, unsolicited, this beautiful young family member of Abraham, a maiden, offers water at the right time, in the right way. He's wondering, like, maybe this is God. Could this be her? Verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, come in. O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, unharnessed the camels, and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So again, again the story just keeps going, keeps getting better. The servant of Abraham gives this young woman the finest of gifts, these massive rings, gold bracelets, gold rings like some serious, serious gold. Discovers she's from the family, right family line. <clears throat> the servant in shock begins to worship the Lord. He thanks God for not forsaking steadfast love and faithfulness. So then Rebecca goes off to tell her family. And again, that's where the story could go sideways too. She has a brother. He comes out with a shotgun. End of story. Like, why are you bringing this stranger into the house? Who is he? No. Blessed, come, welcome, there's room. 
there's straw, there's food, there's fodder, plenty of welcome. So in the midst of the spread and the welcome and the hospitality, the servant is like, I will not eat food until I have told you my mission and why I'm here. So speak on, and for the sake of time, I won't read that whole thing because he recounts the whole story from the beginning, which we just read once. But the part of the beauty of the passage is in the repetition, and it's told and told and retold. And so we move from hearing the story to rehearing the story through the lens of Eleazar. But he backs it up all the way to when the Lord began the whole thing. He tells about his thigh swearing and the travel and the prayer and the drink and the camels. Fast forward down to verse 49. Eliezer finishes the story by issuing a call. He retells the whole story. He's like, okay, what you gonna do about it? Now, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Like, like we're not wasting any time here. Like, I came here to find a wife for my master's son, Isaac. And so if you're like, if you're in on this, great, tell me, great. But if not, then I'm gonna go because I gotta find this person. He's wondering, has this been an elaborate wild goose chase or is the marriage thing gonna happen? And in short, they say yes. Verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. Like this, God's in this. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So they say yes. Once again, you're like, this is crazy. Yes to the immediate plan. Yes. But what about Rebecca? Because they first said, let her stay here for 10 days, and then after 10 days, we'll send her on your way. And the servant's like, no, I'm really on a tight time frame here, and I can't wait 10 days. And they're like, well, let's ask her. Is she willing to go right now? Verse 57, they said, let's call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. Again, this is not meant to be a prescriptive story of how dating should work. It's not prescriptive of how you have to ask about watering camels or getting drinks. But the descriptive part of the story is really beautiful. She says yes. So she heads out. Think about that. This young woman. It's like, yeah, just met you. Just watered your camels. Have a little dinner. And yeah, I'll go with you back to this person. I have no idea who they are. To this place, I have no idea what you're talking about. To marry this guy I've never met. Sign me up. (laughs) So they go with the blessing of her family. And they travel all the way back to the land of promise. Back to Isaac who was waiting. And before we end and draw some conclusions here, you can't land the plane of this story without the final scene. So here's what happens when the servant and Rebecca make their way back. 
Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, quite the story to tell. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And that's how Isaac found a wife. In short, that's how God did it again for the next generation. That's how God built faith for those who were to come. Now, in order to see this story in full, not just as some outlandish, crazy, ancient love story, like some episode of The Bachelor with a rose ceremony at the well, Whenever you read the Bible, you have to pay attention to the details of the story. And this is a love story, a kind of a love story for Isaac to find a wife. But as the story is being told, this is even bigger, bigger picture. It's a different kind of love story. And there is one particular thread, there's one particular theme that is woven throughout this chapter and this story from start to finish. Maybe you heard it and saw it through the story. And it has to do with one word. Next slide. It's the word, well, two words in the English. It's the word steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed, steadfast love. And again, in a way, this passage is a love story because of Isaac and Rebecca, and he does love her, and they do end up married. There's this crazy camel-watering chance encounter at the well. But this story, more than Isaac and Rebecca or the servant and Rebecca's family, this is a story about chesed. This is a story about steadfast love. And that theme was repeated at least four times, if not more, through this story. And I'm just going to point to some of these passages Genesis 24, 12, uh, at the beginning, it says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. This is when the servant arrives at the well the first time having traveled there. And this is his prayer. His prayer to God is that God would show chesed, that God would show steadfast love to Abraham. That's what's at stake for the servant, chesed. Again in verse 14, by this I shall know that you have shown chesed, steadfast love, to my master. And then when behold, Rebekah shows up and she waters the camels and offers a drink and she reveals that she's from the family line of Abraham, Eleazar, the servant, worships, verse 27. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed, his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. And then yet again, after retelling the story to Laban and Rebekah's family, verse 49, he wants to know what will happen, and he wants to know, are you going to show chesed and faithfulness to my master? 
So for the servant, this whole story, yes, it's about finding a wife for Isaac, but the biggest question at play here is, is there gonna be, will, will chesed show up? Will steadfast love show up in the story? Now this word, words, steadfast love, chesed, it appears all over the Bible. Shows up many times in the scriptures, over and over again. And it's a really hard word to translate. There is not one English word that fully encapsulates what it means. And so I'll lean into the Bible Project. They have a beautiful video about chesed if you want to go back and watch it. But here's what they say about chesed. Is that chesed combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment. So steadfast love, it's love, but it combines love and generosity with enduring commitment. It's about promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. It's not conditional, but it's based on the character of the one who has chesed. It's generous loyalty to the promises that have been made. Steadfast love, love, generosity, enduring commitment. It's a really, really beautiful word. Shows up time and time and time again. It's not based upon Abraham. It's not based upon Isaac. It's not based upon Eleazar or even Rebecca. But the part of the story is built on chesed. Is the chesed of God. That God is love. That God keeps his promises. That he's extremely generous. And he will follow through with what he has committed to. So the question at hand in this whole story is, will God continue to be that way? Like I've heard about his chesed to Abraham and Sarah, and it took him a long time to wait, but man, God was faithful, and he was generous, and he kept his promises. And the question at hand here is, will that happen again? Can you count on God to be loving and generous and committed, faithful? Will steadfast love show up again? And the answer in this story is yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Steadfast love shows up again. He does it with his servant as he is sent. He does it again with the servant as he travels and he guides the servant to the right well, to the right watering hole at the right time to answer a prayer that was prayed before he was finished speaking to find the right family to, to experience a woman of extreme hospitality who was willing to water 10 camels to welcome him in to not wait 10 days, but with day one to have faith to say, I will go to an unknown place, to an unknown land, to an unknown destiny, just as Abraham had experienced so many times before. I just want to point out this story is not luck. You're like, man, he's lucky. Lucky servant Eliezer. How lucky was he to find that? This story is not happenstance or luck or chance. The only way that Eliezer, the servant, finds Isaac a wife is because of chesed. That's what the author wants you to know. It's because of steadfast love. Now again, you can read the scriptures and be like, oh, that's cool. Neato. Good for Isaac. Yay for Eleazar. That's nice. Ancient history. It's good. Good little story, Paul. Nice. When's lunch? 
And we say, whew, glad, glad he found that woman. Just want to let you in on a little chesed secret that moves the story from ancient scripture to today. Here's what you need to know about chesed. Steadfast love. God's chesed is abundant. Flowing from the character and the heart of God himself. Listen to what the author of Lamentation says. Again, what a crazy book to talk about steadfast love from. The, the book of Lamentations, a book of tragedy deep in the midst of grief, grounded in heartache. Lamentations chapter three, verse 22 says that the chesed of Yahweh, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. It never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Chesed is not scarce. Chesed is not rare. It's not like, ooh, there's some chesed. I better bottle that up and keep it to myself. No, 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 no. The chesed of God is abounding. It never ends. It never ceases. It keeps going and going. In fact, every morning when you wake up, it's brand new. There's new chesed manna for you each and every day. Great is the faithfulness of God. Or maybe you don't like the book of Lamentations. How about the Psalms? You ever read Psalm 136? If you have a Bible, look, look at Psalm 136. I didn't put the whole thing up here because I was tired of making slides. <laughs> Psalm 136, every other part of the refrain. 26 times the story of Israel is retold. And every other line is, for his chesed endures forever. Not once, not twice, 26 freaking times. Every part of the story of Israel is told by the refrain, and his chesed endures forever. It endures forever. It endures forever. It doesn't stop. There's no limit. There's no scarcity. This morning, this very moment, in this very room, the same covenant faithfulness of God to Abraham, the same covenant faithfulness of God to Isaac, the same covenant faithfulness of God endures to you and to me. The same chesed is true for us. It's the covenant love that was fully embodied in Jesus. If you ever wonder about the love of God for you, look at the cross and the resurrection. It's the embodiment of chesed in Jesus. He endures forever. His love endures forever. His faithfulness endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His generosity to you endures forever. There is chesed today for you. Jesus, who came and lived and died for our sins, who dealt with anything that would stand in the way between you and God. The same Jesus who came to secure a bride. The same Jesus who came to arrange a marriage a wedding with us. In the story, we're Rebecca, the bride who is offered, would you come? And the response, K 
can be by faith. I'll go. I'm just convinced because I've talked to too many people. I am convinced that many of us have become convinced by our own pain and experience that God's steadfast love isn't for you. It's really easy to think that. Like, yeah, 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 maybe true in the Bible. Yeah, 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 maybe it's true for my parents. Or yeah, 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 maybe it's true for those, pe- those special people that really have their act together. And maybe it's because of something that you've done or something that you haven't done or the experiences of your past that would whisper to you that God's chesed somehow stops with them and no longer translates into your life. And there's an enemy of your soul that would love to compound that lie in you. And maybe it's because of the loss that you've tasted recently or the disappointment that you've had or the prayers that you feel like haven't gone answered. May you know and understand that the steadfast love of God is here for you. He's not done. He's a God who does it again. And it'll look different. (laughs) The guarantee here isn't a fairy tale spouse at a well for you. But I promise you this. His steadfast love is new again today. And I believe that God again is wanting to remind us of the faithfulness, the generosity, the keeping of his promises that he is bound to in love to us. His steadfast love endures forever. Fads will come and go. Your feelings will float around and back. His steadfast love is worth building your life upon. Would you be willing to be loved by him again today? Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of our own pain or hurt or disappointment or disillusionment or questions or doubts or fears or anxieties or stresses, our own stories, it's really easy, Lord, to feel the gap and the chasm between these kind of people and us. And so, Lord, I pray even this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would fill that chasm with your steadfast love. And I pray, Lord, for those that feel distant from you today. May you remind them of your steadfast love. For those that feel forgotten and overlooked today, may you remind them of your steadfast love. For those that feel um, unloved, thrown away, may you remind them of your steadfast love. And Holy Spirit, The scriptures tell us that you pour out the Father's love on us. And so we would say to you, Holy Spirit, come and pour out the Father's love again. I pray over my friends in this room that you would pour out the steadfast love of God on them in a way that they would know and experience and be reminded of the ultimate work of Jesus on the cross and your faithfulness to keep your promises until you come back again. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Savior, our Redeemer, the embodiment of chesed. Amen.